0: This morning we hear from the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 4. When Jesus has heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. On the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, They left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, Thank you for that reading, Reverend Chambers. Uh, this is my first time standing in this place since my son, Charlie, was born a few weeks ago, and let me just say, in looking out upon your happy, and pretty much most of your faces are smiling right now, so in seeing your faces, I am reminded that we are a part of a wonderful community. Um, I am so grateful for you all, the kindness you have showed us, with hugs, and notes, and just warm and well wishes. It is always good to be with you. I found myself lately, a few times uh, I'm getting back into that dad mode and uh, the swaying, the rocking, and a few times lately I've found myself standing somewhere without my family at a lunch or somewhere, and I'm swaying and doing one of these. So if I start doing that during the sermon, just forgive me. Uh, Will you please join with me in prayer as we go forward with this text today? Good and loving Father, You came near to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In this hour, give us the courage and the wisdom to see Christ for who he is, and give us the courage and wisdom to follow after your way in all that we are, in all that we say, and in all that we do. May these words and the meditations of all of our hearts bring honor and glory to you. It's in Christ that we pray in thanksgiving always. Amen. At first glance, our passage today begins in such a strange way. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, gets word that John the Baptist has been arrested. The Greek word that's used for arrested can also be translated as handed over or betrayed. And after hearing this terrible news, Jesus just walks out of town. He leaves what is known behind, and he walks toward the lakeshore communities that were dependent on fishing near and around the Sea of Galilee. Yes, at first glance, the optic is strange. When the bad news comes near, Jesus just skips town. Perhaps it was the politically wise thing to do to get out of town for a while, or maybe, just maybe, something more is at hand. This is where we find Jesus when our story begins. He's walking alone along the narrow road that hugged the water's edge. I was reminded this week of the first time that my family and I went to Walden Pond when we lived in New England. We skirted our way along the water's edge, following a sign and a narrow path that pointed the way to Thoreau's cabin. With children in tow, we followed that winding path until we arrived at that place where Thoreau once lived. But much to our surprise, there was no cabin at the end of the path. There was no identifiable remnant of what used to be there. All we found were some rocks and stacked and left by others who had also followed the path to what used to be there. Near the place where the cabin used to be, there was a sign that began with Thoreau's famous words. Words, "I went to live in the woods because I wished to live deliberately." In Matthew's account, there isn't a cabin either. Nonetheless, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, that Jesus made his home by the sea. I have thought a lot about that line this week. What did it mean for Jesus to make his home by the sea? This isn't a lake house with a sprawling view overlooking the Galilean Sea. I don't think Matthew wants us to envision a house or a hut, a cabin or a cottage, Later in Matthew's Gospel, we'll find out more clearly what he's meaning when he says that Jesus bunks down at the end of the day in a very particular way. We read about this in Matthew chapter 8 verses 18 through 20. In this passage, we read about the would-be followers of Jesus and about one man who tells Jesus quote, "I will follow you wherever you go." And on that occasion, Jesus replies to the man by saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. More to the point, I think there's something deeper at bay in Matthew telling us that Jesus made his home by the sea. And here's the point I think Matthew is trying to make God doesn't reside in a house made of human hands, Jesus is not bound by place. Jesus lives, dwells, and resides with and among all creation. At least in my mind, to say that Jesus made his home by the sea isn't just a locational cue in the narrative. It's a reminder that God came to make his home the whole earth. Put another way, Jesus is at home wherever Jesus goes, or there is no place where God isn't at home. In the words of the poet Christian Wyman, God goes belonging to every riven thing. Matthew, after channeling the words of the prophet Isaiah, records that Jesus is walking near the edge of the sea. It's pushing the imagination just a bit, But I'm left to wonder if Jesus ever unfastened his sandals and let the cool Galilean sea lap up and wash over his feet. And if he did, would the water remember his feet? Perhaps you, like me, have heard it said that water has memory. After all, these are the very same waters where Jesus would later walk across while extolling the disciples not to fear, even though they were caught up in the midst of a storm And I wondered this week, like when our family went to Walden Pond, if if Jesus ever picked out those long, smooth stones, and if he ever sent them sputtering and jumping and bouncing over the surface of the water with a, a flick of his divine and human hand. We can only imagine. All Matthew gives us is that Jesus walked by the water's edge. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is at home there. But Matthew has more to say. He goes on to share the account of Jesus happening upon some fishermen while he's walking. First, Jesus encounters Simon and Andrew. Jesus interrupts them and invites them to follow him. And after this invitation, Jesus finds James and John and they follow Jesus too. Matthew commentator R.T. France observes that, quote, from this point on, we shall not read stories about Jesus alone, but stories about Jesus and his disciples. Wherever he goes, they will go. Their presence with Jesus, even if not explicitly mentioned, is assumed, end quote and thinking about the disciples upending their lives to follow after Jesus, one would think that these fishermen would ask the obvious question, where are we headed? Where are we going? But these words are absent in Matthew's telling. Many commentators point out that the call of Jesus is so very striking because it emphasizes the immediacy of the response. We don't find any hesitation The fishermen drop their nets and follow Jesus on his Galilean walkabout. Maybe there's a lesson for us modern types who want to have all of the details before ever budging an inch. Sometimes, faithfulness compels us on a journey to go forward without knowing every bend in the road. What we find is that these followers will learn as they are going, as they are walking. The disciples learn by their doing. More specifically, they'll learn by doing what Jesus does. The line that often comes to mind when observing Jesus in the Gospels is this. We see who Jesus is by watching what he does. I'll say it again. We see who Jesus is by watching what he does. And what does Jesus do with the disciples following after his every move? Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 reads, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Matthew records these events in one sentence, but it seems to me that these events took place over the course of days, weeks, and months on end. At least for me, it's important to think about how all of these events would have taken time to unfold, to help people, to really help and be a part of a healing process is almost always going to mean slowing down in order to see others. In Jesus, God comes near, motivated by love to see and listen deeply to the pains and to the marvels of the world. This is no small thing in the world we've come to know. We dwell in a world of constant contact, but with little eye contact. If we let it, I think the tail end of this story and the mention of Jesus being at home, not just by the sea, but also among those in the throes of pain and needing a word of good news, I think Jesus' presence here can teach us a thing or two. I'm convinced that those following Jesus in any age will come to learn that spending time with those who are sick and hurting is never an unimportant or minor task, something to be quickly checked off of our to-do lists. The last sentence of our gospel text invites us to think about the places where we feel comfortable in the world and also the places that we might look to escape from in order to avoid the entanglements of others. I wonder, are there places that you know well but haven't ever brought goodness there, places you haven't brought help or healing when you could? Where might you need to look at others with greater care or patience? Where does your cadence need to be slowed? Where can you bring a word of good news in your everyday life? The following Jesus will often mean defying our impulse to make snap decisions about others and their pains, reducing people or situations to inconveniences or only as problems to be solved, problems if we are not careful that we can have a tendency to solve without actually listening to and learning from the person in front of us. This past week, I've been reading about how some researchers believe that our brains are being rewired as a result of how we consume digital and mass media. In a world of quick likes and of scrolling through personal and national news stories, our attention spans are changing, and maybe our brains are too. If a headline or a photo doesn't grab our attention from the get-go, if we aren't entertained, We scroll past, move on, or skip over the moments we deem less captivating or compelling. Although we probably all know that people and stories are more complex and wonderfully beautiful than we often give time for, we live in a world driven by quick looks, executive summaries, and the power of the blink reaction. We abstract the world to our own liking, filling and fitting the wonders and pains of the world into our calendars, day planners, and deadlines. One of the overwhelming convictions that I come away with from this passage is that in order to help people, to be a part of helping other people heal in the midst of their pains and wounds, you will often need to learn how to see and sit with greater patience and intentionality. This is a lesson that is frequently been on my mind these past few weeks. As some of you know, I'm in my final semester of doctoral work at Emory, with my graduation coming in May. My dissertation explores theological understandings of dementia, and my writing has often led me to write about the intersections of theology and medicine. And toward this end, I decided that in my final semester, I would take an extra course through the medical school I'm currently taking a class on palliative care, thinking about those moments when medical action won't change the prognosis. In our first class this semester, we all met at the High Museum just down the street. On that day, our instructor and a docent from the High positioned us to sit in front of a wall of portraits. We had these little red portable seats, and we were instructed to sit in front of the portraits, taking them in slowly making notes about what we saw in the faces that were staring back at us. As the minutes passed, we did our best to look deeply while other visitors in the museum were quickly glancing at it and glancing at the portraits and then walking right on by. In fact, the docent told us that the average time a person spends looking at a painting or a work of art is 17 seconds. For most people... They decide in 17 seconds what's going on, everything they need to know before walking away. That's the time that most art-loving people take to read and consider the subject in front of them. On that day, sitting in front of those portraits, we shared our impressions with each other. We spoke about the facial uh, expressions that hinted of loneliness and grief, entrapment, power, and unspeakable sorrow. One student observed that the look on the face in one portrait made her think of being in the room when the news was given that the cancer was terminal and that a wonderful woman wouldn't live much longer. The student was reminded in the portrait not of that woman's face, but of the woman's husband's face. He was trying to be strong while also trying to think about how he could overcome this heartbreaking and and life-shattering news. She spoke of his clenched jaw, of his, his flared nostrils, as if by biting down and breathing in slowly, he could somehow do the impossible task of holding everything together for them both for, for just another moment. We talked about those occasions when we transfer past readings of pain in ways that are accurate, as well as those moments where we think we recognize something only to be proven wrong when we really spend time with someone else. Here's the point. Jesus, the Lord of all, doesn't just reside within creation, but he takes time to see others, to enter in, and to heal. And this is a task that he invites all of us to do as we are walking through life. I've come to love the notion put forward by the Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, who wrote a book titled Three Mile an Hour God. In this book, Koyama observed that the average speed that humans walk is at three miles an hour. Koyama's conclusion seems both simple and true. He reminds us that Jesus didn't only become human, but also that Jesus walked at a human pace. Jesus walked at three miles an hour. Koyama writes, quote, Love has a speed, and that speed is slow. That speed is gentle. That speed is tender. End quote. Here's my hope for all of us in coming away from this passage about the call of Jesus' first disciples. May we come to comprehend the significance of God taking up residence in creation. And may we think about what it means for God's goodness to dwell in the places that are familial or familiar as well as in the places that are foreign. And yes, there is something important about recognizing that we have been called to follow after Jesus' way, a way that transforms what we do where we go and and how we see and sometimes even the very speed that we walk. I began the sermon today with what seems like an oddity in the text. Why is it that when trouble comes and Jesus gets word of John's arrest, why is it that Jesus keeps walking? Why does he leave town? Why does Jesus walk along the water's edge when the chaos is building and the storm clouds are brewing? By the end of this passage, I think I've realized what was always true from the start. Jesus wasn't escaping the trauma, the pain, or the suffering. Jesus wasn't walking away from people. He was always walking toward those who needed good news, a healing hand, and a knowing gaze. Perhaps this is one way of summarizing the Christ story. God comes near and transforms. At every step along the way, Matthew's gospel is showing us that the path Jesus walked is the very same one he invites others to walk to. It's often been said that the gospel of Matthew can be read in part as a manual for Christian discipleship. I'm convinced that Matthew is is weaving this account in an effort to show us what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. And notice that here, right at the beginning, there's a narrative foreshadowing that's signaling to us the very end of the story, or at least signaling for us to remember this decisive moment once we get to the end. Matthew is hinting to us that just because John the Baptist is arrested, betrayed, and handed over, the path of God will not come to a screeching halt. The journey will not end in death and in sorrow. It didn't then, and it never will. The death of anything in God's good creation will never be the last word. The last word in all things is always hope, resurrection, and abiding love. To overstate the obvious, when Jesus is arrested, betrayed, and handed over, even then, the path of God will not come to a dead end. At every turn in the road, Matthew's gospel is instructing those who are following after Jesus. And what do Jesus' followers learn to do when news comes their way and riddles them with pain or sorrow? We learn that even when the way seems dark and the path unknown, there is still good news coming. Matthew teaches us that Jesus walks with us, that God walks with us, and God invites us to join in the work of making the broken places and people whole. Sometimes, God is calling us to walk at three miles an hour. My hope for all of you is this. May you come to know and follow God's way, a way that is true, gentle, and often slow.